Welcome to Science and Wisdom Live, where scientists and meditators meet. Dr. Antonova, it's a pleasure talking to you in this Meet the Speaker interview for Science and Wisdom Live, and thanks for making the time from your very busy schedule. I know how intense it is being an academic right at the beginning of the year, so thank you so much. Thank you very much for inviting me for this interview, and please call me Elena. Sure, Elena. So we wanted to start by asking a question about your childhood. If there was some significant event in your childhood that helped you to become who you are today. It was a difficult one, actually, to, to think about. But eventually, after sort of a few candidate events, I settled on two things. Um, one was a sort of physical event of uh, visiting a museum of natural history, a sort mm. of an equivalent of science museum with my mother. I was about six or seven. We were walking through different rooms. And then at some point, we walk in into a room and it was semi-dark and it was full of shelves with the brains in the jars informally. Mm. <laughs> and I remember very distinctly, my mom went, yuck! And I went, wow! <laughs> 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 and I remember that sort of childlike sense of absolute fascination, seeing these brains. And uh, I remember sort of my mind rushing through this kind of thoughts of, you know, what an amazing thing and what does that all mean and how it relates to who I am. So that was a very memorable moment. And then I would say other events were actually my dreams. They were so out of this world and I was so dissatisfied when I tried to understand them, you know, with the kind of modern psychological accounts of them that I read as a teenager that they are regurgitations of the day past and kind of processing of the memories from the day past I just felt this just does not touch my dreams because they just so they were very vivid very colorful full of what I now would say symbols kind of archetypal mm. symbols so that got me to read Carl Gustav Jung mm -hmm. uh, so that took me on a whole journey <laughs> inside of myself uh, that had a huge impact on how I would then developed and the kind of things I became interested from that point onwards and that led me to um, Tibetan Buddhism and that led me to Dzogchen and that led me to to this conversation with you <laughs> amazing well it's wonderful these two things you combine because one is so concrete seeing real brains and being fascinated about see those outside of the body and what that means. And then also this deep inner experience that you had. It seems both those two things seem so directly to what your life has become. So thanks for sharing those stories. Can you talk a little bit how scientific research has informed your understanding of meditation, contemplation? I would say that my scientific mindset uh, definitely has an yeah. impact on how I approach practice. Uh -huh. and how I pro approach my study of contemplative traditions and my engagement with com contemplative traditions. But I wouldn't say that I rely much on my mm -hmm. scientific knowledge when, mm -hmm. or scientific research when I approach my first-person study mm -hmm. of contemplative traditions. And has the other direction had an impact? Like, has your meditation affected your research? I mean, of course, your research is on mindfulness you know much of your research is on mindfulness and contemplation so 
How did your own practice affect your research in those areas? Mm, I would say entirely and absolutely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So that's the direction. It's... Yeah. In, in that <laughs> direction, everything that I do for my research is informed by my mindfulness practice yeah. and experience. And I would say that I won't normally research things that I only have conceptual understanding of. I would wait until I have experiential mm. um, uh, feel for them, at, mm. at least a glimpse, because I find that giving it proper justice and understanding it, and particularly when I engage with experienced meditators, it does help to have experiential understanding in addition mm. to conceptual one to do it proper justice. That's very nice. That's very aligned with the meditative traditions, you know, that you need to, it's like, you know, chocolate or love, you know, you can't just read about them. <laughs> you need to have the experience. Yes, yes. Well, um, I mean, it sometimes goes contrary to what others in this field believe, because sometimes the question of objectivity is brought up, you know, yes, to what extent yeah. can you be objective if it's sort of to, but I, I pondered this question and I, and I don't think in this particular case it applies. It's a little bit like it's not great to do visual neuroscience research whilst you're blindfolded. You know, it's not going to help your conceptual framework. It's not going to help with you being subtle and nuanced with the type of research questions that you're bringing in. You want to understand what a participant is telling you if you're blindfolded and they are in full vision. So... <laughs> Um, and you actually can see when you read a scientific paper on meditation, I can tell apart when it's written by a scientist mm -hmm. who's also a practitioner and mm -hmm. who's someone from a kind of mainstream, you know, very well-trained scientist that comes mm -hmm. with a sort of mainstream framework and vocabulary. And that's then just kind of gets imposed on, onto the practice. You can just see the, the difference when the words, when the language is just a kind of signposting to a particular experience versus mm -hmm. when the experience, well, there's no flow, you know, it's fixed with the words and there's nothing beyond the words because the, ex mm. the essence of experience is actually not captured by those words. Does that make oh. sense? I, I th oh, I th absolutely. Yeah, and I think that's also very visible, not just in the contemplative neuroscience field. To me as a practitioner, it's very visible when I read um, a scholastic academic books on meditation practice. And you can sort of, you have a sense when the author actually a practitioner, and yeah. then it's someone who comes from a scholarly perspective entirely without the backup yeah. of personal experience. Yeah, well, in the in the Buddhist traditions, there are big warnings that, you can study intellectually your entire life, but if you don't actually practice, then that knowledge isn't of, of much use. So it seems like you're putting that into practice in your own, in your own life. I mean, it's interesting though, because um, what you're studying is a subjective experience, right? As a meditator, but you're trying to find objective, like correlates and proofs of those experiences, right? Is, is that a reasonable way to explain you know, some of the research to show that there's some way to measure some of the effects of those inner experiences that we feel subjectively? I will bring um, Francisco Varela in here. Okay. Because what he would say to this, and I'm yeah. totally with it, I would first bracket out the word objective and say this yeah. is a third-person perspective. Yeah, better. Both are lived experience, both are domains of lived experience, both are phenomenal domains. So mm. I'm interested to look at the relationship between these two phenomenal mm. domains, one first experience of let's say meditation practice and another mm -hmm. a third person experience of the meditation practice because you know as a neuroscientist looking at the brain in the fMRI scanner it's another experience I'm having 
That's very wise. I, I think I'll actually carry that idea with me for the rest of my life because these words subjective and objective are very problematic. If you say first person and third person, it makes a lot more sense and I think it's a bit more accurate. So thank you. Thanks for the correction. Why do you think this dialogue between science and contemplative traditions is important? One, one of the main reasons is this clarification we just, we just did. <laughs> I think <laughs> contemplative yeah. practice could educate <laughs> science bring it out of scientism back mm -hmm. to its to its essence of being a science. I think a lot of us scientists would benefit from this training of staying with the question and not jumping for the answer, having more open framework when yeah. we're investigating the relationship between, let's say, you know, first and third person mm. observed phenomena will be in very beneficial for science. Mm. I bet some people listening to this aren't familiar with the word scientism. So could you define that? <laughs> there are probably uh, a, a few different facets to this, but I think the most relevant to, um, to this conversation and what I would like to touch on is, is this kind of deep-rootedness, particularly for neuroscience, in the framework of materialist reductionism, sort of ontology of brain consciousness. It could be an emergent phenomena, or it could be related to brain activity in some way, so there, there's a little bit of flexibility there with the type of frameworks that are out there. Yeah. But they don't question this main assumption that um, brain is in some way a generator of conscious experience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think this framework has been productive in many ways, but it's at the same time doesn't allow us to touch on many experiences that don't fit into it. And, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and being put aside in the best case scenario, completely disregarded or dismissed in the worst case scenario. And I don't think for us, with this uh, level of knowledge, where we are now, it's useful to close the mm -hmm. paradigm this way. And I don't see any uh, conflict, any problem with using reduction mm -hmm. as an empirical method. You know, mm -hmm. we use uh, reduction as an empirical method in the first person study. You know, when meditating, we, we, we regularly zoom in into particular aspects of experience to study it closer and then we can expand to, to zoom it out. Viewpoint and switch between the two multiple times, right? Uh, during the same meditation mm -hmm. session mm -hmm. or in the course of our meditation practice. So as scientists, we, we do need to zoom in. Uh, and phenomenologists, you know, they, they use the notion of phenological reduction as a way of, okay, I'm going to circumscribe a particular aspect of experience and look at it deeper to understand it in yeah. more detail. But then not forgetting that that's what we did, that yeah. we just zoomed in <laughs> into a particular aspect and just keep on staying there and, and then deriving a whole lot of assumptions uh, about the world um, just because we looked at a very zoomed in part. And as scientists, we often forget that we just zoomed in and we often forget about the fact that it's, it's practical, but it's in no way absolute truth. Yeah, so the the idea of scientism is that is then that everything can be reduced to a material cause. Um, I was I was introduced to this idea a long time ago by Houston Smith, I think who wrote about it a lot, you know, almost 20 years ago, that it's a belief that everything could be reduced to a material cause even though we don't have all that evidence yet, um, especially in areas of research in the mind. So I guess what you're saying is to have an open-mindedness to what the mind is, and it, it could be entirely of a material cause. 
but who knows what the answer is, right? Being a true scientist is being both critical and open-minded at the same time, right? Which is the trick of finding that balance. Yeah, I think it's a skill that <laughs> comes with practice as well. <laughs> Definitely something I find very useful and beneficial. But other way around, in terms of mm-hmm. how science might in, inform contemplative practice, I mean, my, my particular interest is actually, I'm quite interested in cross-tradition comparison. Because sometimes when reading books, scholarly books on on various traditions, I often get the sense that traditions can get stuck on the finger, right? Rather than where it's pointing. And I think science can be helpful there. I think with the will of the practitioners from different traditions and Mm -hmm. actually this um, interview method that I've just uh, done an online course on with Claire Petit Manjin called Macrophenology Interview. And in fact, with experienced meditators, I, I observed the interviews that were conducted by qualified microphenomenologists mm-hmm. of the expert practitioners. And I was an observer. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a study I was running, but I'm not quali- I wasn't mm-hmm. qualified to do it at this point. So I was just observing. And we had practitioners um, of Dzogchen and Mahamudra and Zen mm-hmm. tradition. And with a skillful interviewer, microphenomenology interviewer, mm. he constantly reminds the practitioners to abstract from the language of tradition and mm. actually articulate a felt sense of what it feels like mm. to, exp- to, to, to have a very subtle state of being uh, mm. during meditation practice. The words the practitioners find, the metaphors the practitioners use from different traditions, there's no difference. There's like one-to-one mm. correspondence. You know, mm. I was amazed how mm. many people from different traditions used one particular analogy, which mm. is actually not very common in the traditions. It's something they came mm. up with that they felt described the dynamic of their mm. experience the best. And it was just amazing how many people used the mm. same analogy. And it wasn't your usual, you know, observing yourself mm. like leaves on the, uh, on the water, on the you know, yeah. river passing by or the clouds in the sky. It was, it was very interesting. So I'm, I'm very interested in, in mm. whether science can help to sort of identify the active ingredients mm. and practices um, mm. versus some things that might have become traditional due to some procedural or other secondary purposes. That's incredible because it points to science not just, you know, validating contemplative experience, but actually adding to the traditions and finding the commonalities of, you know, different experiences in very, very different traditions. So that sounds incredible. I'd like to hear more about that sometime. One one last question for you, though. Um, a, a goal of the Science and Wisdom Live is to address urgent problems in the world, or at least talk about how they could be addressed. And the last question is, is sort of hopeful, is if you, if you could be granted one wish to solve one of the urgent problems of the world through contemplation and science, what would that problem be? I think in many ways, uh, a lot of our problems due to the fact that we have become so rooted with this view that we are our brains collectively, mm-hmm. not all of us, but a lot of us. And I see that in, in, in the students, you know, in my young students mm-hmm. who choose to do psychology and cognitive neuroscience, it became such a societally engraved, accepted belief for many people. Uh, again, I repeat, not everyone, but a lot of people. 
And, you know, Patricia Chargeland, the uh, philosopher of mind, neurophilosopher, mm. she actually formulated the term neuroexistentialism, where you are your brain. And I think there's a lot of distortions about how we relate to life, how we understand awareness, our connection to each other, our connection to nature. I think that belief, whether it's implicit or explicit, is in the heart of these distortions. So if I, if I had a sort of a wish and a magic wand, that's one splint I would take out of everyone's mind and <laughs> just open ourselves up to uh, other way of uh, exploring what awareness is and exploring who we are mm. uh, rather than us blindly identifying with, with this mass of grey matter and fatty tissue between our ears as, as fascinating as I still find them. Well, that's a great place to end. Um, and, you know, very achievable too, you know, this is something where it's a problem that can be addressed person by person. <laughs> so, um, well, thank you so much. I got a lot out of this conversation. Um, talking to someone like you, I really feel like just a few things that you've said, some of them will stick with me through my life. And I'm looking forward to our conversation with the other participants um, in a few weeks. 